Well, flip over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28, Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the most wonderful invitation that has ever been extended to anyone. Jesus extends this invitation to everyone. To all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we look like or where we are from, no matter our nationality, our race, our wealth or lack of it, our age, our education level, our political affiliation, or any other thing that human beings use to exclude and separate one another. Jesus excludes no one. The only criteria... For this invitation is that we be weary and burdened and in need of rest. I think we all qualify for that. There's a tiredness and exhaustion that can come from the weight of responsibilities in this life and from the trials and difficulties that come against us. These come in all shapes and sizes. It can be the daily grind of a job that you hate. It can be the never-ending homework assignments at school. It can be the demand for attention from the little ones that never seems to be satisfied. It can be the weight of financial obligations that are never met. Life can be fatiguing. The term adulting has been coined to refer to these responsibilities and frustrations that have a way of sucking the life out of life. Someone said, adulthood is like looking both ways to cross the street only to get hit by a falling object. <laughs> Unprecedented and headache-inducing. Someone else said, adulting is too hard. Let's play something else. <laughs> That kind of weariness and burden is certainly included in what Jesus is talking about, but he's talking, too, about much more than that. Jesus is talking about the weariness and the burden that comes from sin in our life and the unsatisfied spiritual thirst we feel, the self-destruction, the guilt, the loneliness, the lack of purpose and fulfillment, the hole inside we can't ever seem to fill. Jesus, too, is calling out the burdensome religious system the Jews had developed in his day that had added mountains of their own traditions on top of the actual law that God had given them through Moses, creating for themselves an unbearable system for people to live under. Jesus is also talking about the heavy load of humanity's many attempts to satisfy that hunger in our soul for God. The various religious systems, for example, the people have come up with which have these strict observations or observances and restrictions to be 
followed in misguided attempts to cleanse ourselves of sin and connect with God. This wearisome burden being talked about is the human condition. The alienation we feel in all of the stuff that we do to try to fix it. All of that is wearisome and burdensome. Jesus promises to give us rest. Rest for our souls. What is this rest that Jesus is talking about? Well, it's the opposite of this weary and burden experience that we have in this life. The rest that Jesus is talking about is not sleep or ceasing from activity. It refers to the quality of life that He can give us. Rest is a synonym for salvation. Rest is the life that salvation creates in us. Salvation produces rest. Rest is the experiencing of salvation. Rest describes the peace and the joy and the wholeness that Jesus creates in a person. In Jesus' promise of rest, there's both the aspect of a coming rest and a rest right now. The rest Jesus offers us is not just for the life to come, but it's also for this life. We're not talking about a long celestial nap. This rest is not inactivity. It is fullness of life. It's a coming homeness. It's a settled and secure soul of peace and joy, even in the midst of life's chaos. It's a life of hope that's looking forward to a better country, to a city whose architect and builder is God, to heaven. The rest that Jesus gives us now, it's a foretaste of the full rest that he has for us in the next life. In spite of what some of the sleep-deprived people around us might think, a ceasing from activity would not be a very satisfying rest. See, we were created to be creators. Like the one who made us. It's part of his nature, and he's put that as part of our nature, too. We were created to imagine, to make, to build, to transform, to express, to invent, to do, to work. It's part of our nature. What makes work drudgery is not the activity. It's the relentless meaninglessness of it. The fall of humanity, it cursed our work, making it into difficult toil. But Jesus Christ redeems work for us. When the new life of Jesus is born in me, my, my job, my vocation, career, work, chores, responsibilities can be seen as a call, a mission, a ministry, an act of worship. As a follower of Jesus, everything I do can take on an eternal significance. Mowing my lawn can be an act of worship. I can glorify Christ in it. I can represent Christ in it. Colossians 3.23, Paul wrote, Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. 
It's the Lord Christ you are serving. The rest that Jesus gives us in this life, it's a reorientation of the motives and the attitudes behind our activity. It's a redirecting of purpose for our life. It's a submission of our will to God. It's a confidence in this all-sufficient love and power of God. It's a life filled with hope for a coming future better than anything we can imagine. Jesus, he promised us a full rest in the next life, heaven. John 14, 3, you might remember, he said, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. You also may be where I am. The eternal rest that we look forward to, it's not a ceasing of all activity either. It's not going to be this long heavenly snooze of nothingness. That's not what heaven is. Instead, imagine doing what you are perfectly gifted for doing. That you have a deep passion for doing that brings you huge joy when you're doing it, that is totally fulfilling and meaningful for you when doing it. I don't know what that is for you, but heaven is going to be like that multiplied many times over. Heaven will be the most joyful, fulfilling, invigorating experience you can imagine. How do we receive this rest? By coming to Jesus. He said, come to me and I will give you rest. It can't be obtained any other way. We can't earn it. We can't follow a set of steps to get to it. No method, no map, no money will get it for us. It's something we receive from Jesus Christ. We come to him with an open heart, acknowledging our need, and we ask. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who, who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. How do we continue to experience this rest in our life? By following Jesus. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's another way of saying follow me. A yoke is a device that fits around the neck of an ox or other draft animal resting on its shoulders so the animal can pull the load of a wagon or a plow, for example. Well, Jesus, he uses the imagery of a yoke to contrast the character of the life that he gives us with the life of tiresome toil and burden that is the common human experience. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The life I give you is characterized by rest. It's easy. The burden is light. Jesus, our Lord, the one that we submit our life to, the one whose yoke we take on, is himself gentle and humble in heart, he says. It reminds us of the description of Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, where it says, when he saw the people, 
He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord we serve is gentle and humble in heart. He's compassionate and kind and generous. He puts our needs before his own. He doesn't think of himself first. He laid his very life down for us. Knowing the character of Jesus, who would not want to take his yoke? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus calls us to follow him, to leave our old master and put ourselves under him now. We already know what the alternative to following Jesus is, a life lived outside and apart from Jesus. We already know what that yoke is like. It's a weary and burdensome yoke. A life dependent on our own gumption and determination with no future beyond this life. James Montgomery Boyce said, following Christ is, in a certain sense, the hardest thing anyone can ever do. But at the same time, it's possible for everyone because Christ himself gives us the will to persist in our calling. I'm reminded of the words Peter spoke to Jesus in John 6. After a large number of people stopped following Jesus after a difficult teaching that he gave. Jesus asked the 12 disciples if they wanted to stop following him too. And Peter said in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now I purposefully skipped ahead to verses 28 through 30, this wonderful invitation by Jesus to come to him. Before we took a look at these earlier verses, beginning in verse 20. So we'll have a better understanding of what people are refusing. But in verse 20, earlier in Matthew 11, we're told this. It says, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus denounces these local towns in which he has done most of his miracles Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These people, they have witnessed firsthand astonishing miracles of healing and restoration by Jesus. Some of the miracles that Jesus has done in these towns, which we have read about in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, include the healing of the servant of the Roman centurion, curing Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, 
healing a man who was paralyzed, bringing a dead girl back to life, restoring the sight of two blind men, freeing a man from a demon that was preventing him from speaking. And that's just a small selection of the many miracles that Jesus had done in and around these towns. But these people, they're indifferent to what Jesus is doing. Some, like the religious leaders, they're even actively opposing him. These people, they see him as little more than a magician doing magic tricks for the entertainment of the crowd. Some, like the religious leaders, they see him as competition, threatening their power and position. These people remain unmoved, not repenting of their sins, not changing their behavior, not changing the way they're living their life, not turning toward God, not putting their faith in Jesus as Messiah and following him as a disciple. And Jesus tells them they will be held accountable for the things that they have seen and heard, for the opportunities that they have been given. And to illustrate how serious of an offense this is, he tells them it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom in the judgment than for them. Tyre and Sodom were Phoenician cities on the coast of the sea of the Mediterranean Sea, which suffered drastic judgment for their arrogant opposition to God and their terrible treatment of God's people. They were completely destroyed by invading armies, and the remains of the cities were literally scraped off into the ocean. Sodom and Gomorrah are infamous, aren't they, for the judgment of God that was brought against them when fire rained down from the sky, completely destroying them because of their lawlessness and violence. Judgment is not a pleasant subject, especially when it's coming from the mouth of Jesus. We want to hear about his grace and salvation, not judgment. As much as we don't want to hear about judgment, if we are believing Jesus for our salvation, then we also should believe him about his judgment. There's no reason for us to think that he would tell us the truth about one and not also the other. If these people are going to be held accountable for what they have seen and heard, it raises an uncomfortable question about people who have grown up in a Jesus-informed culture. People often want to ask the question about the fate of people who have never heard about Jesus and never given the opportunity to receive him as Savior. We're not told directly the answer to that question in the scripture, but we know that God is fair and perfect in all his ways, and we can be confident that he will do the right thing. But a more disturbing and important question that comes up in this passage is what will happen to people who live in a Jesus-informed culture, and they've refused his salvation, cultures like the one that we live in. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Again, as unpleasant as it is for us to hear about judgment, 
of the Lord, it pains the Lord far more than it does us. He gets no pleasure from judgment. He desires the very best for us. He longs to have each of us on good terms with him. He wants to bless us with salvation and wholeness. God wants us to know him as Father. 1 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you remember the generous, open invitation that Jesus has extended to all of us that we looked at in Matthew 11, 28 through 30? That represents the heart of the Lord toward us. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. A final thought before, before moving on. Witnessing a miracle is not enough to produce saving faith. These people in these towns are an example of that. Most of the miracles that Jesus has done have been done right here in these towns. And yet it has not caused a lot of these people to repent of their sins and embrace Jesus as Messiah. People will say, you know, if I could see a real miracle, I would believe. If I could be given convincing evidence that would prove the existence of God, then I would believe. There is evidence enough for you and I to believe. There's more to saving faith than simply being convinced of the genuineness of a thing. Demons know God is real, and they know Jesus is Messiah, but that knowledge has not produced saving faith in them. See, God has seen to it that we are kept in a position requiring trusting faith. You are not going to find convincing evidence without faith, but you will find evidence enough for faith. There's evidence enough for saving faith in Jesus as Messiah, but there is not evidence enough to not require faith. In the end, we are still faced with the choice to believe or not. It will always be that way. Faith pleases God. Verse 25 says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So in contrast to this indifference, disrespect, outright opposition that Jesus receives from many of the people in these towns, he overflows with joy when he considers what God the Father is doing. It says God the Father has hidden from the wise and learned who Jesus is and what he will do in a person's life. And at the same time, he has revealed these things to little children. Wise and learned. Jesus doesn't mean literally and only people who are wise and educated. He has nothing against 
wise and well-educated people. Instead, Jesus means those who think themselves wise and learned and above needing the salvation of Jesus. And little children, Jesus doesn't mean literally small children, although small children are certainly not excluded, but Jesus means those who are humble like little children and they look to Jesus for salvation. The Father has hidden these things from the wise and learning, and He's revealed them to little children. See, faith leads to faith, and a refusal to believe it leads to the losing of faith. Matthew 13 12, Jesus is going to say this Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. We see this truth playing out in the lives of these people, the wise and learned, even though even what they have is taken away because of their refusal to believe. The Father has hidden from them the truth about Jesus. And in the case of those called little children, the Father is blessing them with the ability to see Jesus more and more. The Lord is very gracious to the humble. And he's opposed to the proud. Twenty-seven says, "All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him." This is amazing to consider. Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. It brings to mind that passage from Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15. as we consider the scope of what Jesus is saying here when he says, all things have been committed to him. Colossians 1.15, it says, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in Everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What an amazing thing to consider 
all things have been committed to Jesus by his Father. The Father reveals the Son and the Son reveals the Father. The Father sent the Son to rescue and redeem us. The Son who has dwelt among us reveals God the Father to us. And so we return to the beautiful invitation by Jesus to come to him to receive the rest of salvation. Verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The rest that Jesus promises is the opposite of the weariness and the burden of the human experience of this life. He's offering a new kind of life, a life of purpose and hope, a life that extends beyond what we can experience with our physical senses, a life that does not end with the ceasing of the biological functioning of our body, a life that is not valued by our performance, but is given worth through the love and grace that God has for us. Have you come to Jesus? Come to Him. Take His yoke upon you. He's gentle and humble. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You will find rest for your soul. Let's bow our heads in prayer. If you've never come to Jesus before, I encourage you to do that today. And even in this moment of prayer, all you have to do is come to him. Just ask. Acknowledge that you need him. You need this life that he's offering. And then take his yoke upon you. Follow him. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for this new life that you have given to us. I pray that you would encourage your people this morning. You would lift us up and remind us of this life that you have given us, this rest that you have given us, this salvation that you have given us, Lord. a burden that is light, a yoke that is easy because you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.